1: Welcome, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, T.K. Coleman. What is up? Malabama is here. Hi,
2: everybody. We've
1: got the rest of our team in the studio. And Ryan Nicodemus, I just got off the phone with him. He's going to be joining us next week for episode 404 Mm. What were you saying you wanted to call that, Malabama? Oh,
2: I wanted to title it Podcast Not Found.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, <laughs> Good old classic error 404. Yes, the
1: 404 error. We'll, we'll try to be error-free this episode, though. <laughs> this is episode 403. By the way, shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you for scri- subscribing to our private podcast. You keep our show and our YouTube channel 100% advertisement-free because, say it with me, y'all, Advertisements Advertisements suck. suck. Yes, they do. Let's start with our callers today. If you have a question or a comment for our show, give us a call 406-219-7839 or better yet, email a voice recording right from your phone to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Roberta. Hi,
0: Minimalists. This is Roberta from Indianapolis. I just started listening to your content and I've decided to embark on my own minimalism journey. I have a lot of stuff, mostly fashion designer stuff, handbags, shoes, sunglasses, etc. A lot of these items can be resold on a resale site, but it will take a lot of my time and energy to do it. Um, however, I thought about consigning some of these items, which would speed up my process, but it would be disadvantageous for me financially. So just wanted to know what your thoughts. Should I try to resell them myself, but it would take them a lot of time. It would take a lot of energy. The items will still be in my home or I could uh, consign them. They'll be out of the house, but then I would lose even more money. So just wanted some help on that. Thank you.
1: Roberta, it seems to me that you have at least five options here. And I have some articles pulled up. I'll put links to these in the show notes. And I'm interested to hear TK's perspective on this. Let's get practical for a moment. And then maybe we, TK, we can bring TK in to get philosophical with us here. But the five things you can do with your unwanted clothes that you know you might be able to sell is, first off, you can sell it. You can, well, you can consign it you can put it up for consignment so you're not selling it yourself you're asking someone else to sell it for you you can donate your things if you don't want to deal with it because let's face it yes you might be missing out on some money if you sell some of if you don't sell some of these things but you're going to spend a lot of time trying to sell these things as well and that's not a good or a bad thing but you have to understand money's one thing but there is no refund for misspent time. And if it's going to take you hundreds of hours to sell these clothes, which I don't know that it would, but you have to you have to realize that the money is only one resource in this entire equation. Of course, if you can't donate certain things, you can't donate. It sounds like all the things that you have could certainly be donated. But if you can't donate something, then of course, we can recycle many things. And ultimately, at the end of the cycle here is there are some things we just have to trash. It can't be donated. It can't be sold. It can't even be recycled, and so we have to trash it. I've got a few articles here. TK, the first one is from the Los Angeles Times. It's called The Best Places to Sell Unwanted Clothes Art furniture, and more. Hmm. So broadly, we're not just talking about unwanted clothes. I think that's a great place for people to start when they're talking about simplifying because we all go into our closets or especially if you have a walk-in closet, you have a lot of things you haven't worn in the last 90 days or even in the last year. Maybe you have some things that still have tags on them. You've never worn those things, mm-hmm. but you keep holding on to it. Why? Just in case. The story that I tell myself about the future. And so these are the best places to sell unwanted clothes, art, furniture, and more. Let's we'll go through the list here. When we talk about clothes, uh, they talk about Poshmark. Now, podcast Sean, a uh, former podcast producer of The Minimalist, he worked with us for a very long time. His wife sells things on pa- Poshmark, Mark, and she Absolutely loves. She enjoys. Actually, she goes out and finds things to sell on Poshmark, not just her own things, but she'll buy things from thrift stores or other places and she'll go sell them on Poshmark. She'll spend her time in order to make money. Now, the key to that is she enjoys doing that. I wouldn't enjoy doing that at all. And I imagine if you forced me to do it, I could do it, but I wouldn't want to. However, When I had debt, one of the things that I was doing with all of my excess material possessions, if I knew I could get more than $20 for it, I would sell it. And the reason being is twofold. One is I needed that money to pay off my credit card debt and other debts, my car debts, et cetera. But two, I wanted to create a little bit of pain in my life Hmm. because this pain says, okay, why did I buy these things? Why did I put myself in debt? And that pain was enough pain to realize I don't want to go back into debt ever again. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to read this article real quick, just a a brief excerpt. And she's talking about someone here named Mary Kay Corolla thinks Poshmark is the perfect place to sell used clothing. Corolla started selling clothing six years ago when she dropped 10 sizes after a surgery. Her closet was full of nice things she could no longer wear and she wanted to make room for her new wardrobe. Now, when I started simplifying my life, TK, I had a bunch of old clothes from days when I weighed a lot more. I had a few double X shirts. What a terrible plan. I was holding on to clothes just in case I gain all of the weight back. And part of me was like, wait a minute. I know I don't want to gain the weight back. Hmm. Why am I holding on to these things that no longer fit me?
3: Was there a fear? I might gain the weight back even though I don't want to? Yes.
1: Yeah. And I think holding on to it reaffirmed or amplified that fear because, oh, I still have these clothes. I must be the type of person who wears a double XL t-shirt. Nothing wrong with that, except I didn't want it for me. I was wearing a medium shirt but afraid that I might grow back into my double XL shirt. The article goes on to say she initially tried selling through eBay, but that service allows buyers a full, but that service allows buyers a full month to return goods and several buyers clearly wore caroda's clothing before returning it. Mm. So that's something that uh, Poshmark doesn't allow. They only allow 72 hours if you're selling the clothes on Poshmark. One
2: thing I want to add about Poshmark, something I found out recently when a friend of mine got married. If you're in a situation where you need to get a bridesmaid's gown, oftentimes they'll say, we want it to be this specific retailer and this specific color. What folks will do is they'll take those specific things like JJ's house, Dusty Rose, whatever. You can sell those when you're done wearing them on places like Poshmark. And If you're looking for those and you don't want to buy one brand new, you can buy them there as well. I did this with a uh, maid of honor dress this past summer um, where I could search the exact retailer, exact criteria, made the bride happy. And I saved like 50 bucks because those dresses started like 80 or 90 dollars. I don't want to spend that on a dress I'm going to wear one time. And I could turn around and put it right back on there and sell it for somebody else to use, too.
1: That's so good.
2: Just the thing about bridesmaids' dresses.
1: Well, you realize most of your clothes lose 90% of their value the moment you walk out of the store. Yes. And so... When you recognize that, you realize you can go to places like Poshmark, or you can go to eBay, or two other sites that are mentioned here in the article, Macari and the Real Real. We actually have a physical Real Real store right down the street from our studio oh, here. Neat. And uh, Real Real is a consignment shop here, but they sell really high end things as well. So you can buy high end things, or you can just buy regular shirts like the T-shirt I'm wearing, used. Sometimes those used used items, they're not even used. They're Mm -hmm. still new. It's just it's a reseller selling it. Someone didn't want it. It didn't fit them. Or they wore it once and realized it wasn't for them. So it's very gently used. And you can acquire those things for half off, 75% off, 90% off. And I'm not talking about coupons or sale price. I'm just talking about you're taking advantage of the system, realizing if I don't go directly to the retailer, the item's been sold from the retailer already, I will, I'm already saving money because that person spent the money on the item originally. Mm -hmm. So good.
3: So I'll just address one mindset aspect of this. So the dilemma as I'm hearing it is, if I optimize for money, I will lose valuable time and energy. But if I optimize for time and energy, I will lose money. Either way, I will lose. And what I would invite you to do is negotiate that language of I lose because I lose often feels incompatible with I choose. Losses are things that happen to you or things that you have to do, but you don't feel like you're creating your losses, right? But I love the words of Thomas Sowell here who says, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And so instead of I lose, what about it cost? Because now you're not thinking about things that are happening to you that you can't control, but you're thinking about the price that you're willing to pay for the things that you want. And it becomes an investment. And then you can change that it costs to, I choose to invest in my life in this way. Because no matter what choice you make, there are going to be trade-offs. And so the questions that you want to ask is, what are the results that matter most to me? What are the things I'm most willing to live without? And then you combine that with your technique of saying, hey, everything above this price is worth the energy and the effort to sell it. Anything below that I'm gonna choose my time and energy.
1: And by the way, that price for me has changed over the years, and I think it'll change for most people as our boundaries change. For me, it's $100 now. And if I can get more than $100 for a thing, I will still go through the effort of trying to sell it. The formula I have is simple. Here's how you sell a possession. You try to sell it if you can get more than X dollars. You pick what the X is, $20, $100, $500, whatever that X is, you pick it. And if you can't sell in the first... Seven days, you lower the price. If you can't sell within 30 days, you donate it. Oh, this thing is not sellable for me. I've spent enough time on it, right? And so I'm going to donate. If I can't donate it, I recycle it. Ultimately, if I can't recycle it, I'm going to throw it out. But if I go through that process, A, I'm going to make money on the things I can sell, I'll feel good about the things I can donate, and there'll be far fewer things I have to recycle or trash. Getting back to the article here, the article also talks about side hustle. There is a website here. We'll put a link to this website in the show notes as well. It's spelled differently. It's S-I-D-E-H-U-S-L. And uh, side hustle, uh, the title of it is 450 ways to make money on the side. Side Hustle researches, reviews, and rates more than 450 online platforms that allow you to make money on the side. Just hit what you want to do, work, rent, or sell, and we'll show you the possibilities. You need an idea? Check out the Side Hustle blog or take a quiz. So what Side Hustle does, is identifies like, okay, Poshmark is great, but we don't recommend... Macari or we don't recommend the real. And they'll tell you why. And you get to make your own decision. I'm not going to follow their advice blindly. But it seems to me that they have this catalog of 450 different sites that you can use to sell your own things Mm. and also to buy things that you might enjoy buying that you're already looking for. You might be able to find a much cheaper route to take by going to Side Hustle. Do you have any experience? I know, Malabem, you have some experience with Macari and with The Real Real and some of these other places. Also with furniture, yeah. the article mentions OfferUp. You've used OfferUp quite a bit. Facebook yeah. Marketplace for furniture as well. And then the article finally mentions if you're selling art, there are places like Society6 and Redbubble. Do you have experience with any of these selling sites?
2: So I've definitely used Facebook marketplace and offer up when it comes to furniture, um, a lot of selling my own or buying stuff that especially when people have like a deadline where they're moving and they need to get rid of a lot of stuff. That's where they go to first. And as it get closer to that deadline, the prices go down to the point where it's like free. Just somebody pick this up because I can't I don't have anywhere to put it. Um, One thing that I did see on there that I really enjoyed using was up. That is one if you have a lot of clothes that are either still have the tags on them or things that are in really good condition, brand names and things like that, that's the one I would look at. If you want something that's pretty hands-off and you just want it out of your home, what they do from uh, what I recall is they send you a bag and you just put all the clothes, shoes, accessories, whatever in the bag, send it to them and they'll let you know, hey, here's how much we'll offer you for these clothes, anything that they can't sell, they'll offer to donate it for you. And if you want to, you can decline that. They'll send it right back to you. Or you can say, yeah, go for it. And they'll pay you out for it.
1: Yeah, TK, the, the fascinating thing here has to do with, oh, man, if I have to take all these clothes, I'm thinking about walking into my closet right now. And I take all my clothes out and I have to put them up one by one on eBay or Poshmark. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And also, it's really boring. Yeah. But just because something is boring, that's not a good reason not to do it. In fact, creating a little bit of pain in your life might mean, oh, I'm not going to make this same mistake again. I'm not going to overconsume clothes. I'm not going to buy furniture that I don't need. I'm not going to purchase artwork that I'm never going to use. Nothing wrong with buying things that add value to our lives. But when we're just buying things for the sake of consumerism, what happens? I start to consume a bunch of things that I don't actually use. And then getting rid mm-hmm. of it is boring. And I I just ignore it. And I say, you know what? I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll wait till next week. I'll get to that eventually. Yeah, But someday is not a day of the week. And it just waits out there in perpetuity. And so, TK, do you have any insights about that?
3: Yeah, one thing I would say is just because something is important and initially difficult, it also doesn't mean that it has to be boring. Sometimes when we say I don't have time to do this or I don't have the energy to do this, what that really means is I haven't found a way to do it that feels enjoyable for me. The economist Rory Sutherland talked about how he consulted for a train company once and they said people are complaining about the amount of time it takes to get from point A to point B and we don't have a way to speed it up. Can you help us? And he says, yeah, add some music put some TV screens on there, serve some cocktails. It's not about how much time it takes to do it. It's about the experience people are having while they do it. They followed his advice and there were fewer complaints. So sometimes it's not about, hey, this thing is difficult or it takes a lot of time. It's about doing it in a way that feels enjoyable to you. Everything can be imbued with some creativity.
1: I think that's spot on. Uh, with respect to books, the article last thing here in the article: Abe Books and BookScout are a couple different marketplaces in which you can sell your books. Also, if you have like fine china or crystals, uh, there is a company called Replacements that reportedly helps people sell classic china and crystal uh, electronics. Obviously, a bunch of places you can go for that, but um, Swappa is a website that can connect you with people who want to buy your old smartphone, electronic devices, and even games. And there's a whole list in here of best sites to sell a cell phone. Of course, jewelry is another one. Jewelry is something that's really difficult because mm-hmm. A, there tends to be sentimental value in a lot of jewelry we have. But B, we paid a lot of money for it and mm-hmm. the sunk calls fallacy sinks in. It's like, oh, I paid so much money for this. I couldn't possibly let it go for less. And then here they talk about uh, a website called Worthy. And you get a personal representative who helps with the sales process. There's another website in here called Circa that you can use to sell your jewelry. And then Alabama, you talked uh, earlier before we were recording, you were talking about wedding dresses. The last thing they mention in here is getting rid of wedding dress. We have so many people who are like, I used my wedding dress, really enjoyed the wedding day. (laughs) And now I just have, what should I do with my wedding dress? I'm like, oh, you should just wear it every Saturday, I guess. (laughs) If
2: I could, I would. If it were socially acceptable and it wouldn't drag everywhere, I would. I very much enjoyed my wedding dress. But uh, if you're looking for something meaningful to do with your wedding dress, one of the programs that I found out about the past couple of years is called the Angel Gown Program. And what they do is they partner with hospitals to take wedding dresses as donations, and they turn them into gowns for Mm. infants that may have been um, this is, this is a sensitive topic, but it's someone who loses the infant in the process of birth or, you know, anything like that, families are pretty distraught and that's the last thing that they want to worry about. That gives them one less thing to worry about when they are in a position to take final photos and, and start that bereavement process. They create these beautiful gowns from the wedding dresses that you won't wear again.
1: Wow. And so you're repurposing that thing. You got value from it. You've ceased to continue to get value from it. But now someone else in some way or multiple people can get value from this thing that otherwise, I mean, quite often what happens is we find a way to preserve the wedding dress. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But what do we do when we preserve it? Now it's just like in a coffin in your basement or in your attic. And yeah, you might go look at it once every decade or once a year or whatever, but you're probably not getting any real value from it. I'm going to put a link to one more article here in the show notes. This is from Good Housekeeping: How to Sell Your Used Clothes Online to Make Money Fast. And there's a bunch of different websites that they recommend. We've some of which we've already talked about: ThreadUp, Depop, Poshmark, Macari, The Real Real, eBay, Etsy, and several others. TK, any last words for Roberta? When I listen to Bama's story,
3: it just makes me wish everyone could feel that when they finally exercise the courage to let something go, Mm. that you're not just letting something go. You're making something so beautiful happen for someone else. You're solving a problem for someone. But until someone figures out a business model to make that happen, this is something we have to remember for ourselves to always remember that it's not just about us. It's about other people.
2: Yeah. That's beautiful.
3: Letting go is an act of generosity. It is. Yeah.
1: Our next question is from Natant.
4: Hi, Josh and Ryan. My name is Natant from Boulder, Colorado. I am reaching out to get help in deciding whether or not I should have children or adopt them in future. My partner has expressed that she is certain that she does not want to have or adopt children. And I'm still uncertain. We established Early on in our relationship that we were both fine with treading this path of uncertainty for a while, and very quickly, more than two years have passed, we absolutely connect with each other on our core values our most of our hobbies, and I absolutely love her. I think I want children or adopt children are still uncertain because one of my core values is compassion. And I believe that having children would give me the opportunity to live a life for someone beyond myself. Additionally, I think after reflecting on my childhood, I saw that my grandparents were completely dependent on my parents after retirement. And I think this desire comes from that as well. And for my partner, I think her childhood trauma and her relationship with her parents probably also defines her her belief to not have children i want to be confident in my decision and i was curious if there are any ways to either make relationship work out when one partner wants kids and other doesn't or the inner work that i could do to come to a conclusion or at least if not conclusion be okay with my
1: decision TK Natan brings up a really good point he can't get his partner half pregnant <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's a good thing <laughs> And there are some things in relationships that are that way. They most things in relationships however are not binary. It's it's a little bit of give and take. Like, "Oh, you know, I wanted to eat Thai food tonight, but you wanted to eat Italian." Okay, let's go to the Thai Italian fusion restaurant. Right. Or, you know what? Tomorrow we'll do Italian, tonight we'll do Thai. And you figure it out together. It's a subtle compromise, but you're not compromising your values. And I think discontent begins to Set in when your values are misaligned with your actions. And so Dan Savage, a former podcast guest here at The Minimalist, he has a great show called The Savage Love Cast. And he he dishes out sex and relationship advice on that podcast. And one of the things he often talks about are the costs of admissions for a relationship. And so For you, Natan, the cost of admission to being in a healthy, thriving relationship would be to either not have a kid with your partner, right? And that means you have to give up on that thought. Now, a little bit different when it's inverted, right? Because women have only so long that they can have a child. Usually it's within the first 40 to 50 years of their lives. Al Pacino's 82 and he just had, I think, his fifth or sixth kid. And so as a man, you have more time to figure this out. So you don't have to make a a rash decision right now, but you have to understand that also, this is one of those rare binaries in a relationship.
3: Absolutely, this is a very different category than what are we gonna have for dinner tonight? I'm willing to give up my craving for Italian in order to make things smooth. Mm -hmm. This is a big deal. And the first thing I wanna say to you is that you don't have to apologize about wanting to have children. You don't have to justify that to anyone else. You know, like, don't feel like this is something you need to come up with a knockdown argument for just because there are people who have decided having children isn't for them. I'm here all day for the people who say, listen, I've thought this thing through and being a parent is not something that I wanna do. Better to be honest with yourself now than to regret it then and take out your resentment on the kid. However, I'm also here all day for the people who say, I want to be a parent. And it's very important that you be honest with yourself about that and with your loved one about it. And the first thing I say is assume nothing and discuss everything when it comes to this. And when I say assume nothing, I don't just mean assume nothing about your partner's willingness to be flexible about this or that, but I also mean assume nothing about the way, the way this arrangement may or may not work. There are so many different types of relationships. I Not everything is for me, but I know long distance relationships where the couple doesn't even live together, where they do very different things, where they live in different states. There are so many different ways to do life. And, and who am I to say, because they are happy, they are healthy, they are doing well, and they figured out a way to make things work for them. So I would ask a question like, hey... If I decided this is what I want to do and what I have to do to be happy, what does that look like for you? How does that land on you? What are your thoughts about that? And have a series of discussions about that rather than saying, you know what? I've thought about this. I'm determined to be a parent. Clearly that doesn't work for you. So I'm out of here because you're not entertaining possibilities and you're not giving that person the opportunity to introduce an idea you've never considered before.
1: And I love that what you're doing here is you're not saying, well, here's the right way to do it, here's the wrong way to do it. What is right for you might be wrong for me and vice versa. And it mm-hmm. fa- sounds like in the Tant's case, what is right for your partner right now may be wrong for you or what is right for you, i.e., what is your preference here, right? Because it's not morally right to have kids. It's not morally wrong to not have kids or vice versa. But you know what would be wrong? if you forced yourself into not having kids or if you forced her into having kids, all of a sudden you're going to create years, decades of resentment and discontent. However, I will say this, sometimes people change. Generally, you know who you are, and I would tend to err on the side of not having kids unless it is a hell yes for both partners. And there's a reason that I err on the side of that, because you're bringing another person into the world. I'm not an antinatalist, although I'm sympathetic to that worldview, and I think there's a great book about antinatalism. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, because there's a coherent argument that it makes sense to never have kids at all. And because you're bringing someone into the world who is guaranteed to suffer, even if they have, if you're like my wife who had the most idyllic childhood and she grew up on a farm with two parents and three siblings, you still Suffer, or if you grow up worse, like I did, and you're on food stamps and government assistance, and there's physical abuse and alcohol abuse and drug abuse in the house, there's a lot of suffering there as well. And so you're bringing a being into the world that is guaranteed to suffer. We don't know how much. They might have a childhood disease as soon as they're born. Some of this congenital, and now they have to deal with that for their the rest of their lives. Or maybe they develop an autoimmune disease in their late 30s or 40s, and then they're suffering then. You can't possibly calculate for all of those things, but you have to recognize you are bringing a human being into the world that is going to suffer. So if it's not a hell yes for you and for your partner, then it doesn't mean it won't ever be a hell yes. But right now, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. When I was thinking about this question, TK, I was thinking about one of my favorite TV shows. It's uh, True Detective. Have you seen it? I haven't seen that. Okay, I'm going to show you my favorite scene from the first episode of season one of True Detective. Ooh, I'm ready.
5: I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Hmm, yeah, that sounds... God-fucking-awful, Rust. We are things that labor (laughs) under the illusion of having a self. This accretion of sensory experience and feeling. Programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody. When in fact, everybody's nobody.
1: I wouldn't go around
5: spouting that shit. I was you. People around here don't think that way. I don't think that way. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal.
1: Oh, this is the perfect portrayal of pessimism and nihilism. And I don't mean either one of those things are a bad thing, but quite often when we talk about family planning and getting married and having kids, it's always the ponies and rainbows side. But there's another side to it. Having kids, and I know because I have a daughter, is stressful. Having kids puts stress on the relationship. It also puts stress on your thoughts, your interior life. And it puts stress on the kid. None of us are prepared to be parents, especially the moment we become a parent. And so when you think about the other side of this, you realize that you don't have to have kids. There are other ways. You talked about compassion. And one of the reasons you want to have kids is because you're compassionate. You value compassion. Great. There are plenty of ways to be compassionate. I'm compassionate every day, even when I don't see my daughter. I could be compassionate to the people in this room, I could be compassionate with the cashier at the grocery store. I can be compassionate with a stranger I see walking down the street. To be compassionate simply means to be with someone when they're suffering. Yeah. And of course, you're going to be compassionate as a parent because you're bringing a life into the world that is going to suffer. And if you can't be compassionate, ooh, it's going to be really difficult to be a parent. Absolutely. And I think these two things go hand in hand, and I I just want
3: to juxtapose them. In the same way that you don't have to have kids... You also don't have to marry anybody that's committed to not having kids if you are committed to having them. Because in the same way that it's going to be really difficult to love children, and that's not a hell yes for you, it's going to be really difficult to love and endure another human being that you see as standing in the way of your dream to be a parent. And so it's a both and thing with this. And so... I, I just listened to a podcast about someone that was getting ready to get married. They had spent all the money on it and they were like week of, and there were some very important family members and friends who says, hey, look, we're not saying you got to call it off entirely, but please just give it three months. We have these concerns. Just give it a little more time. It was extremely difficult for her to do it, but she talked it over with her fiance and did it. And she said it was the best decision that she ever made because her family and her friends were right Wait, think it through, discuss it through, make sure that it's right for you, but don't rush into any situation thinking that you are going to make someone else come over to your side if they're being very clear with you right now that they've got a different value system than you. That will only hurt you and that person by forcing the relationship to work. I'm not telling you that it won't work, not telling you that it can't work, because you feel uncertain and have expressed that. There's a part of you that wants it, part of you that doesn't. And so that's where the uncertainty comes from. But work on that with yourself first before figuring out how this can work because the former is gonna determine the latter.
1: And the worst thing that could happen here is you rush into it because you feel like having a kid or not having a kid is going to save the relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't rush into not having a kid. You just continue to not have a kid, right? right? But rushing into having a kid, if all of a sudden you're able to coerce or convince or persuade your partner that it's the right thing to do. And I tell you what, we'll just have one. I want three and we'll compromise on one. No, as soon as you bring a kid in the world, now you are a parent and there's no compromising. You either are a parent or you are not a parent and forcing someone to make a decision like that. They're being dragged there against their will. That's a type of coercion in a relationship. And that is terrible for a relationship. I find quite often when a relationship gets to this this bifurcation point, you know what often happens? It's we're going to do something drastic to try to save the marriage. I'm going to buy a house with you. We're going to go out and finance new cars. We're going to get a new wardrobe. We are going to have kids together. And what happens is you make some joint decisions that you very quickly Regret, because instead of blowing up the relationship before that decision, you decide to use that decision as a reason to end up blowing up the relationship, and now there's all kinds of pain and suffering and regret in the wake. One important, one last important thing for you here, Natan, is understand what your values are. Understand what your partner's values are. We have a free values worksheet over at theminimalists.com/v. And getting clear on the four different types of values. It's like building a house. You have foundational values, you have structural values, you have surface values, and then you have imaginary values. And find out where your values lie. And you're always going to have different values from someone. But if you don't share the same foundational values as someone, it's like trying to build a house on two separate foundations. And it could be that you're not compatible with your partner. Or what happens is you fill out this values worksheet, you download it for free, you just fill it out and you realize, oh no, we totally are compatible with our foundation of values. It's just a few different preferences we have. Yeah, our surface value is a little bit different. I like blue and she likes red paint or whatever. So what? My wife and I voted for two different people in the last election. But we don't care. That's just a surface value for us. Yeah, I'm not part of some sort of political party or some ideology that I've built my, uh, my foundation with. Yeah. And I think the same is true here. If you're like, yeah, I think I'd kind of like to have a kid, but it's not part of your core foundational value, then you two might be compatible. But if her core foundational value is, I don't want any kids, and your core foundational value is, I've got to have kids, it's so important to me. You might not be compatible, but only you can decide. Hey, one last thing.
3: We hear a lot of stories about breakups that end in this really ugly way and two people walk away from each other hating each other. But there are other stories about breakups, breakups where people part ways with mutual respect and love for one another. There are many of us who have learned valuable things from former partners and we're not filled with resentment and bitterness, right? Sometimes you talk over differences and the amount of love and respect you have for each other actually increases. But because life has so many uncertainties and those vulnerabilities can be scary, sometimes we walk into relationships saying, you know what? This is how it's going to be. And so it's never going to work. And we end it. And what I would just encourage you to do is in the spirit of assume nothing, discuss everything, discuss these, these things with her in a spirit of good faith, goodwill and charity. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with her, but be open to the possibilities here. Because whether you stay together or whether you go different ways, there might be more to this situation in your heart and in her heart than meets the eye. And this discussion doesn't have to be a battle. It can be one that increases your respect and love for each other.
1: Our next question is from Johannes. Hi, I'm Johannes from Copenhagen. I find that I have less and less time for having a smartphone in my life. It's a constant distraction that regrettably comes with a lot of conveniences. Which
6: approach should I take in deciding whether to keep my smartphone or maybe settle for an old mobile phone, a dumb phone, if you will?
1: It's so true that our devices become distractions when we are unable to use them deliberately. This wonderful thing that was supposed to save me time. In 2003, I got my first BlackBerry. By the way, I just watched the BlackBerry movie recently. It was really good about sort of rise and fall of the original, the OG smartphone. It's, I got my BlackBerry and the tagline or the sales pitch really was, This is going to save you two hours a day, which not even I say that out loud is nonsensical (laughs) because... There are only 24 hours in a day. It's not like I get 26 hours now in the day. And if the device did that for me, wonderful. But what it was really saying is now you can distract yourself in these interstitial moments. So you are at the doctor's office in the waiting room. Okay, I'm going to pull up my emails. I'm going to respond to some emails so I don't have to put this off till later. But what happened is that began to bleed into every area of life. Now I'm sitting down eating lunch and I'm distracted by the emails. And the pings and notifications. I was out to a really nice dinner with my wife for our 50th anniversary. Now, we've only been together eight years. We had a a 50th anniversary recently. We're just doing it in advance. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love that, that, man. Whole episode on that at some point. But go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll save that. Anyway, we're at this really nice restaurant and. They have these dividers up, like, remember, like, the old COVID dividers? It was kind of like that, but it's just a a nice restaurant, so there's this glass there, so you don't hear what's going on at the table nearby. But I can see through, because it's this glass window, essentially, in the restaurant. And I look over, and there is a husband and wife couple, and they're both not just on their phones, which I get. I, I don't do, I don't like to put my phone on the table. It's just for me. If you like doing that, do whatever you want. But I don't like to put my phone on the table. I don't want to be on my phone. If I do need to get on my phone, I will treat it like a phone call. I'll say, hey, excuse me for a moment. I need to go respond to this text message. But they were there and he was watching a basketball game at this really <laughs> nice, expensive restaurant. And she's on there watching YouTube videos. They're across from each other, but they didn't even need to be in the same room. I don't know if I'm impressed or sad. I'm equally M and D pressed. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good way. And because here's what happens is our smartphones, this device that was this beautiful tool has turned into this weapon of mass distraction. Mm. Mm. And we're distracting ourselves all the time. I'm in line at the grocery store. Oh, I'll just check this ping really quickly, yeah. right? I'm in the car real quick. I'll just check this. And then what happens is I go to pick up my phone to do something specific, but because I've retrained my brain, I instantly go to the most distracting, most pleasing app in the moment. And it's driving me crazy because I don't realize I'm doing it until I get in there and I forgot, oh, I actually went into my phone to write down this really important note. Now I don't even remember what the note is because I've been stuck on Instagram or YouTube or your app. And none of these apps are inherently evil. But if we don't have the boundary set up, I think they're going to distract us to death. Absolutely. Last
3: night, my wife and I were just talking about all the different tools that we have. And uh, I said to her, I says, you know what? If I had YouTube when I was 14 and all the stuff I was curious about and wanted to study, oh man, it would have been like this and it would have been like that. And then I, I stopped and I said, you know what? What would have actually happened? is I probably would have destroyed myself. Mm-hmm. I probably have about 50 addictions. I don't even, can't even imagine right now. You know, that's probably what would have happened to me. I'm, I'm glad my life unfolded the way that it did. But the point isn't that YouTube or the internet, or all this stuff is e- evil. It's about being honest with yourself about what your limitations are and what your needs are. And that's what it really comes down to. It's not about, is this tool good or bad? Is it useful or useless? Should I get rid of it or should I keep it? It's, where am I at? What's this doing to me and what's it doing for me? Do I want more of that or do I want less of that? And if I want less of that, do I have the courage to say goodbye in spite of a world that's constantly telling me this is what I need in order to be a person?
1: This is almost the opposite of the previous question. I love what you're highlighting here because the previous question, we were talking to Natan about, Should I have a kid or should I not have a kid, basically? Mm -hmm. And that was binary because you can't have half of a child. But here, we also treat something like the phone as binary. Either I should have a smartphone or I shouldn't have a smartphone. Mm. And okay, you can have it exactly how it is right now, but clearly it's making you miserable, causing some sort of pain or suffering in your life. And so you want to change. And it feels like the only way to change it is to completely get rid of it, to eliminate the smartphone phone from your life. And that's great if you wanna do that. And especially as an experiment, it's wonderful. Back in 2011, I did a 60-day no-phone experiment. I wrote about it at theminimalists.com. And I learned so much about myself. Not only did I learn that Oh, you know what? There aren't pay phones anymore. Those have been gone for a while. <laughs> but you learn about your own little twitches. And you also learn a lot about your friends as well. If your friend's like, hey, let's meet at the coffee shop at noon. And you wait around till 12, 10, and they're not there, they can't just text you and say, hey, I'm running 15 minutes late. And so I would leave sometimes because I'm like, oh, the person just didn't show up, right? And so you learn a lot about your patterns and the patterns of the people around you. You learn how the phone has changed society. Yeah. But then I brought it back into my life at the end of 60 days because it was never meant to be a permanent experiment. Ah. And I brought it back in with this new mindset. And I call it the reduction mindset not reductionist, but reduction mindset. So I can either keep my phone exactly how it was, and it's distracting me all the time. It's a weapon of mass distraction. Or I can just chuck my phone in the ocean, and that's fine too. You want to do that? Well, probably don't throw it in the ocean. But metaphorically, you can throw it in the ocean, get rid of it, right? And in doing that, yes, you free up a lot of mental time, you add some clarity, but you also deprive yourself of some things you might need. So the middle ground here is how can I make that phone less distracting? And well, for me, it's how do I make it less enticing? Mm -hmm. What's most enticing to me? It's the social media apps, it's YouTube, and it could be a few other things that I find myself going to. It could be the browser for you. You can remove the browser from your phone. You can remove email from your phone. I removed email from my phone years ago because I found that two things would happen. One is I would check it out of convenience. Oh, I'm just going to get through these real quick. But as soon as I did that, one email would show up that would totally ruin my day. Yep oh, I need to do this right now. And it throws me off track. And so I got rid of email on my phone. You can get rid of your browser. You can get rid of the most offending social media apps. You can get rid of YouTube. You can render it so it's boring. You can set it to grayscale so the colors are less appealing to you as well. The key here is how can I turn this distraction back into a tool? And only you can answer that question.
3: Man, just before the show, I was talking with you about working out more and some things that I wanna do. And 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 I, I set my reason for not doing something. And Professor Sean says, TK, do you know that's the most common excuse that people give for not doing it? And we were talking about resistance training. And he says, the key is to just figure out where your body is right now and do something that's conducive with that. And then Danny Unknown says, that's right, man, because it's always going to be hard to start. Even if you figure everything out and you're like, yeah, I'm going to wait until I lose 15 pounds, whatever. He says, it's always going to be hard to start. And so the best time to start is right now. We live in a world that tells us go big or go home. But the people who truly understand change recognize that it starts small and grow forever. That's how it works. That's
2: so important. I recently started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu like a few months ago, something I've always wanted to do. And one of the things that I I had brought to my attention is when you ask somebody in that martial arts, what's the hardest belt to get? People assume it's the black belt, right? Because that's the top dog. That's the one that could just like, you know, throw you across a room, real fancy action style. But in actuality, it's the white belt because most people don't start. Wow. And starting is so important because of that.
1: Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah. And you can start by doing something drastic if you want. If you really just want to get rid of your phone, donate it, sell it, throw it out, throw it at your wall, yell at it, hit it with a baseball bat. You can do something drastic and that can be really helpful. But then you might decide two months from now, three months from now, you want to bring it back into your life. But when you bring it back into your life, I guarantee you'll do it more deliberately. If you temporarily deprive yourself, and this doesn't just apply to your smartphone, it can be anything. If you go without your car for a week, you might learn how to use your car more deliberately. If you go without your favorite shirt for a month and then you bring it back in, it's like, oh, yeah, I really, I really like this shirt. So going without, not forever, but for a temporary period of time helps us better understand and better value the things and the tools in our life. And it helps us use those things in a deliberate way that is in accordance with our actions. We're aligning our values with our everyday actions. Our next question is from Steve.
5: Hi, my name is Steve Chamberlain, currently residing in Petaluma, California. Just discovered the podcast and love it, largely because of the way you embrace and dispense common sense advice and endeavor to convey empathy to all of your listeners. I grew up near Concord, Mass, and idolized Henry David Thoreau, spent many hours at Walden Pond. I note you've mentioned him in some essays. Is it possible to orient a discussion around him? He was such an ideal minimalist. Two brief quotes demonstrate that. He says, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to confront only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. He also says, I had three chairs in my house. One for solitude, two for friendship, three for society. I love that. He was present, deliberate, and possessed only those things that enriched his life. He died in his 40s telling a friend several days prior to his death that he regretted nothing. Such an ideal character for a show.
1: TK, I don't know how familiar you are with Thoreau, but he was instrumental in my simplification mm. of, of my own life, right? Because when I started simplifying, I was looking for beacons to point toward simple living. And it started with more contemporary minimalist, Leo Babalta, he and his wife have six kids in a blended family. And what did that teach me? Well, it taught me that minimalism was possible even if you live in a chaotic household with yeah. eight people, you could still be a minimalist, right? It may not be as clutter free as if you're just living like Henry David Thoreau in a cabin in the middle of nowhere by yourself, which, by the way, when Ryan and I back in 2012, we moved to a cabin in the middle of nowhere, Montana, on the side of a mountain and the Boston Globe did an interview with us and they uh, they they called it like Henry David Thoreau, but with Wi-Fi. That's my favorite Mm. quote. (laughs) It it was the title of their article, actually. And uh, what a great quote. Now. What I'll say about Thoreau is he was instrumental in my understanding of the simple life early on. He pointed toward other people who were living simply. But the thing that really stood out to me from Thoreau is he has this great quote, and I'm just approximating the quote here. He said, it's not enough to be busy. Even the ants are busy. And it made me think, like, we value busyness so much in our society. Do more keep the hands moving, it's like the last question with respect to the smartphone being such Mm. a distraction. The reason it's such a distraction is we are always trying to keep our mind busy, our hands busy, our time occupied. Well, Thoreau said, it's not enough to be busy. The yeah. question is, what are you busy about? And if I yeah. were to append that, I'd say, what are you focused on? Because I can be focused on all these, other, these things that are inconsequential. They don't matter to me. Nothing wrong with entertainment, but I can also entertain myself to death. Nothing wrong with pleasure. But if I'm blissed out, I'm a little bliss bunny going around ex- expressing my happiness and joy and bliss mm. 24-7, maximum bliss. Maybe I'm actually missing out on all the nuance of life as well. When you hear people talk about enlightenment, you often hear them talk in ways that they think the end point of enlightenment is perpetual bliss. Well, that's, that sounds like a particular kind of hell. Orgasms are awesome if I had to have an orgasm 24 hours a day, not only would it be exhausting, but I would beg to please stop with this bliss. Yeah. You know,
3: one of the things he represents for me is that the value of curiosity. I think one of our greatest assets we have in life is curiosity. Curiosity is a manifestation of our our sense of wonder, our sense of play, our sense of possibility when we ask what if, or how so, or why that, we are truly human. And one of the tragedies of our times is that so much of this sense is being controlled by technology. Our questions are coming from what's trending. And we're only thinking about the questions that we're, that are being asked in our own time. We're only Conditioned to be concerned about the issues of our own time, and we're losing our sense of the timeless. We're losing our sense of history. We're losing our sense of something other than what is trending. But when you go out into nature, as Thoreau did, and you look up at the night sky and you see the vastness of space and you see the stars, and you start to ask questions like, What's up there? What's out there? What's that stuff made of? Are we alone in this universe? How do we get here? Why are we here? You can go in so many different directions. You can go down a, a scientific rabbit hole of, of astronomy and cosmology. You can go down a philosophical rabbit hole of metaphysics and epistemology. You can go down a metaphysical rabbit hole of like the paranormal or mysticism, spirituality. But whatever rabbit hole you go down, you know what's the coolest part? Is none of those questions are coming from social media telling you this is what you need to be asking right now. None of those questions are coming from a headline that says you will cease to be relevant if you don't ask these five questions. They're coming from your soul's response to nature. And those are the questions that bear the secrets to who we truly are. Those are the questions that are worth asking. And even if we don't answer them to our own satisfaction, the mere process of asking those types of questions, wrestling with them, is what molds us into interesting people And to me, that's what he captures. You get out in nature, not because technology is bad, but because there's something to be found there, namely the secrets of your own soul that the social
1: engineers can't give you. Mm. I used to talk about Henry David Thoreau a lot more than I do now. On our first four tours, this is before the podcast, before the Netflix films, it was just writing books and writing blog posts. And we'd go out on tours and a lot of people would show up at our tour stops, Ryan and I, and I would mention Henry David Thoreau, a lot of people would know who he was. And then we started touring internationally and no one knew who he was. Mm. It's this really interesting divide. So if you are listening to this, if you're one of our 51% of people who's overseas, who's outside of the United States of America, then Henry David Thoreau has some timeless wisdom that is worth exploring. And you may not know a whole lot about him. I remember I was going to the UK and we did I think 12 tour stops there in one month. And I'd go around and mention him, and most people had no idea who he was. A few people did, for sure. They weren't completely lost to the concept, but I found I had to explain more and more about who Henry David Thoreau was. And he was a man who went out into nature, lived in a cabin by himself, really simple. He was one of the OG minimalists, except when you go back even further and you go back and you look at uh, the Epicureans or you look at the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus, who's my favorite Stoic. Mm. And what you realize is... Oh, minimalism, the idea is not new. What is new now is the problem. Nevermore have we had so much access to unlimited consumption, one-click purchases, act now, buy, 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 consume, consume, consume. It will make me a better person. Now, people dealt with that to some extent 2,000 years ago or 200 years ago. But the problem today is new. It's instant and unlimited access. And minimalism allows us to set up the guardrails to say, I need to Mm. live deliberately within these guardrails. The one way we do that, though, is we look back at the ancient wisdom of yesteryear. We look at the Stoics. We look at Henry David Thoreau. We look at any major religion, whether it's Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and you see there are ancient wisdom traditions here. And there's knowledge here. More important than knowledge, there's wisdom that is learned through experience. And I can tweeze out, I can avoid some of the suffering myself, because other people already suffered for this wisdom. There was a a tweet that said, hey,
3: all you people under 30, what in the world did y'all do for fun before social media? (laughs)
0: <laughs> and Kavan
3: on stage made a little video about it. And his answer was, we went outside. Yes. And I thought that was so brilliant because we spend so much time inside that we've lost our deeper understanding of what is actually inside. And so now we have to go outside in order to reconnect with that vast inner space of consciousness that is the true inside.
1: Yeah. And so social media becomes a distraction. Busyness becomes a distraction. Consumption is a distraction. In fact, we can consume all kinds of things that aren't just material possessions. Yeah. Later in the episode, we're going to talk about calendar clutter. I'm going to show you the most frenetic cluttered calendar that you've ever seen. Oh, man. And it is terrifying. But first, let's tune into social media questions here. We have one from Facebook.
2: Scion asks, if priority means the first thing, but you have ADHD, you can totally have 20 first things <laughs> because the distractions cause them to change so mm. suddenly. How can minimalism help us restructure our environment so that our priority is easier to focus on?
1: What a thoughtful question. The first thing that I would think about here is, how can I turn my perceived weakness into a superpower? Because what if you're Perceived weakness. We often talk about things like ADHD or Asperger's or I'm on the spectrum. But are there examples of people with ADHD or who are on the spectrum or have whatever ailment that we've pathologized as bad? Can we look at them and say, oh, wow, they actually use that as a tool? In my own life, I've used my own OCD. I was diagnosed as a teen with obsessive-compulsive disorder. I'm much more obsessive than I am compulsive. But what I've learned is two things. One is everyone has some level of OCD. It may not be the same extreme as mine, but my version isn't as extreme as the person who has to touch the door handle 47 times. And that doesn't mean they're wrong either. But my OCD... As painful as it was, when I pathologized it, I realized, wait a minute, this is kind of a superpower for me. It really means, how do I reframe this? It really means that I have acute attention to detail. We don't call it, I mean, we should just call it attention to detail disorder, right? Uh, Because I pay attention to all of the little things. My my random joke or my usual joke is, you know what drives me crazy? Everything. Because (laughs) I have OCD, right? Mm. And What drives me crazy also fuels me, right? I see all the things that are wrong with my world, and then I work to correct those things or fix those things, not because I believe in a permanent fix, but because I enjoy the building and the creating and the shaping. And yes, I do get a bit neurotic about this podcast from time to time, but the reason this podcast is as good as it is and how many people listen to it is because of the attention to detail. We pay attention to the thumbnails and the show notes and the production notes beforehand and the process document that we use to to put together the TikToks and everything else, we have a level of detail that is important, that allows us to amplify all the things that we're talking about.
3: And by the way, to heap it on a little bit more, you're, you're a lot more human than you making yourself sound because you not only notice the white noise when we put on the headphones, but you notice people's body language, people's facial expressions. If someone isn't feeling well, if someone's energy is off, if someone is too tired to work, you pick up on that stuff. And you know how to check in with people to make sure everyone feels supported to have what they need to do well. And if they don't, to be able to go where they need to go in order to get well. And that's another aspect of how your hyper attentiveness is a kind of superpower because there isn't anyone else that notices the things that you notice in quite the same way. And that's not because we're bad people. We don't care. It's just you're hyper aware. I would love to know from you a little bit more about your how to's if you have anything to unpack because- I get that you're able to somehow do this, but for me, you're really big on keeping priorities singular and simple. And at the same time, you strike me as the kind of person that would have the hardest time being that way. So how do you do it?
1: Yeah, I realize part of it had to do do with a realization. And that realization was when I had 20 different priorities, because I used to also be a lot like this Facebook commenter here, I would have 20 priorities, Mm. or at least I'd tell myself I did. In fact, I had spreadsheets full of these different priorities. A, it stressed me out. So I realized having this many priorities, trying to focus on this many things at once was not only stressful, but I wasn't actually getting the things done that I wanted to get done. And I was forsaking the thing that was most important to me. So when I say priority, here's what I mean. What is the one thing that is most important to you right now in this moment? Now, for someone with ADHD, you might have you might be able to switch to the thing, the next thing that's more important. For me, I go deep. I dive deep. When I learn about a new author, I'm not just reading their Wikipedia page, I'm reading their biography, and I'm reading the biography about the biographer who wrote the biography. I I will dive deep into that subject, right? Because that is the priority for me, and I'll spend more time on it than someone with ADHD. It doesn't mean you're wrong for spending less time on something or being less focused on attention to detail, but whatever you're doing right now is your priority. If you're just there scrolling mindlessly on Instagram or TikTok or threads, that is your priority. Whatever you're doing right now, if you're out shopping for new clothes that you don't need, that's your priority. If you're being mean to your spouse, that's your priority. If you're sleeping right now, great, that's your priority. If you're driving to work and listening to a podcast while you're doing it, That's your priority right now. It's not wrong to have a priority. In fact, the problem is often we don't have a priority. Mm. When I don't know what is the most important thing to me, when we talk about meaning, we often talk about what matters, what matters to me. Well, the word matter has a Sanskrit root that means to measure. And so, the things that we measure are the things that matter to us. Mm. If you look at the Latin, the Latin uh, goes to um, illusion, and so it's a it's sort of magical what matters to me, right? Yeah. And so, what matters to me is is going to. It's going to be completely different from what matters to you. Mm. What I measure in my own life, what matters to me, are the things that I measure, the things that I look Mm. at, right? The things that I'm focused on. If I'm not focused on it, it might be important to you, but it's not important to me. I
3: remember hearing the late Ken Robinson talk about a parent he was helping whose daughter was having behavior issues in school. And after he sits with the mother and the daughter for a while, noticing her behavior. He says, your daughter doesn't have an attention problem. She's a dancer. And the question I want to ask is, what's right about your flaws? And don't get it wrong. I'm not saying you should overlay all of your shortcomings with a pretentious philosophy of self-love. Everything about me is beautiful and you just don't appreciate it. No, but we're so good At criticizing ourselves, I don't do a good job of showing up on time. I don't do a good job of, of, of paying attention or whatever it may be. What is the context within which the qualities you now have can flourish and find that? Because so much of the difference between greatness and something else or what works and what doesn't work is finding the context within which you naturally thrive. And then you don't have to waste so much time trying to do things that you aren't optimized for and just condemning yourself for failing over and over again.
1: Another question here. This one's from Instagram.
2: AD asks, I think our beliefs are often implanted by the people who raise us. They tell us what to believe and how to behave based on their own experiences. How do we uproot these secondhand beliefs and start to discover our own?
1: Hmm. That's certainly true. The data shows, especially the first five years, your parents are going to be handing their beliefs to you. Mm -hmm. By the time you reach puberty or even sooner, around age seven to ten, you begin to adopt the beliefs of your community. It could be the kids you're playing with at school or you're at summer camp together or just the other people in your community. And so it is true, even from a young age, you become the people you surround yourself with, right? One of our favorite and most popular minimal maxims is you can't change the people around you, Mm. but you can change the people around you, meaning it's futile to try to change someone. I'm going to change who you are, I'll coerce you and manipulate you until you become the version of you that I want you to be. Yeah, That doesn't work. And if it does work, you're convincing them against their will, right? And as Dale Carnegie said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Yeah. So they, they might look like they share your opinion or belief now, <laughs> but behind closed doors are like, ah, oh, look at this idiot, right? Yeah. And so I could tell you what I do, TK, and then I'd be interested to hear your perspective. I do my best not to operate from a position of belief. And Mm. you've actually taught me this and you've helped me out a lot with this with respect to your curiosity. You're able to get really curious and not dogmatic and not trying to change me Mm. uh, about uh, opinion or something that I might have. But I realize as soon as I have a thought, it often turns into a belief. And those beliefs often turn into ideologies if I hold on to them tightly. And then my ideologies turn into dogmas. Nothing inherently wrong with a dogma, but if I'm using that dogma to batter other people, that's when that becomes a problem. So what is the real problem with these beliefs or these thoughts or these ideologies is, yeah, we inherited them, So I don't necessarily believe what I believe. It's someone else told me to believe that. And this is especially true when we pick up an ideology from a political party, whether it is the Democrats or Republicans or socialists or libertarians. And now I have to believe everything they believe. Or what about the religion that I am a part of? I have to believe every single thing that you believe in order for me to be part of your group. OK, I guess I'll say that I believe those things or even worse, I'll convince myself I believe those things, even if I don't. And so, TK, Mm. I try to operate from a place of non-belief. What is true? Mm. And Kapil Gupta really taught me this. Because it doesn't matter, ultimately, what I believe. I could believe the earth is flat. (laughs) Okay, so what? What does that do? But it also doesn't help if I believe the earth is round. No matter what my belief is, it doesn't change the facts. It doesn't change what reality is. You know, TK could believe Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time,
4: <laughs>
1: but the facts just aren't on his side.
2: <laughs> Why you got to come at him like that?
1: I, I, I was so with him all the way.
3: <laughs> and then I just, now I'm going to double down on my belief system. <laughs> you know, one of the things you're talking about here is sunk cost fallacy, in relation to beliefs themselves. I already bought the ticket for this ism. I already signed up. I'm a member of the fraternity now. And I guess I got to defend this thing that makes me really uncomfortable. Or now that I've discovered this fact about the thing that I believe, I got to find out how to defend it. And so many people ask, well, hey, if you believe that, what are you going to do if you ever discover that that's not true? What else is there to do other than to evolve and to see that evolution not as a threat, but to see it as growth, right? Anytime you say yes to truth and you let go of something that is not true, that couldn't stand the test of time, that couldn't stand the test of scrutiny, you grow into something that's bigger and better. That's not a loss, that's an add-on. But you know, one thing I wanted to say about you know um, dealing with these self-defeating thoughts that we take on from other people, it was Terrence McKenna who said, so many times we think we're thinking when we're really being spoken to. We know that projection is a thing, right? Where I can take my thoughts, superimpose them upon you. But introjection is also a thing where I can take your thoughts and internalize them as my own. Just because a thought occurs in my head doesn't mean that it came from me. In the same way that just because I'm inside a house doesn't mean I'm the owner of that house. You don't have to claim that thought is yours just because it's happening in your mind. And so many forms of knowledge we pick up come from the way we watch other people emote, the way we watch other people process. So much of what we know is really tacit knowledge. Nobody ever told us, hey, when you have conflict, solve it with violence. When you get angry, be a victim about it. When you're when you when you're confronted with a challenge, completely give up and give hope. No, you watch people model that for you and you take it on without even knowing you're taking it on. And that's what makes it even more powerful. One way to begin changing that is to identify heroes of virtue. What are the qualities you would like to see yourself embody? Identify people who embody them and find ways to insert yourself into those kinds of social spaces where you can begin to adopt that culturally transmitted form of knowledge. When I used to work in restaurants, I would see certain people laugh at certain things and it would make me go, oh, that's an interesting response because what that customer did would be really irritating to me And the way he just handled that wasn't just cool, but that was new to me. I'm putting that in my toolbox. That actually feels better. Who are the people that model the virtues you want to embody, the qualities that are important to you? And how can you find ways to engage in activities, visit places where you can be around that more? Because you got to go there in order to know there. You got to be around it in order to pick it up.
1: What I hear from you is what you're saying is unlearning is just as important, if not more important, than learning. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we've been handed a belief. We've been, handled, we've been handed a tradition. Yeah. We've been handed a cultural way of living. We've been handed an ideology or a religion. And all of a sudden, we've believed it for so long, but we realize there's cracks in the facade here. Mm-hmm. And now I'm beginning to question it. I might have to unlearn some of my beliefs because these beliefs have turned into a pattern. The grooves that have been etched into my life, I've been believing something for so long. It's not about simply learning something new, but unlearning that belief that I've been handed because, oh, it turns out the things that I've been thinking aren't actually my thoughts at all.
3: What What a fast way to become monotonous, boring, one-dimensional. We've all seen these shows where someone's talking and you're like, oh, this is the guy that gets paid to defend the whatever-ism position. And he is never going to say anything contrary to that. And no matter what true thing you pull out, no matter how undeniable it is, he absolutely must find a way around it. He can't just look it in the face and say, yep, that's true, even though it's against my position. And it's like, when you become that kind of person, we all recognize that person, by the way. We have an easier time recognizing that person when it's someone who doesn't represent our own belief system, but we all recognize that kind of person. And when you become that Mm. in the real world, it's like, okay, it's one thing to do that on a TV show and get paid to pretend, but who are you fooling in the real world? You're just fooling yourself. You're just fooling your meaning. You're fooling your dreams. You're fooling your life away.
1: Yeah, you're bending your brain backwards, contorting yourself so much in order to adhere to this belief that's no longer serving you. As Robert Anton Wilson said, your belief system literally becomes BS. Ooh. Yeah. Let's turn over to Twitter. We're on threads now, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's turn to Twitter. We got a question from Lili.
2: Minimalism was a great idea until we started to get higher inflation and less buying power. Is the economy now forcing people who can no longer afford a large house to be more minimal?
3: Mm. I like that. Minimalism was a great idea until this thing happened. Mm. Well, I think the qualities that make a great idea great is that it works for you and it makes your life better. And great ideas have a way of doing that regardless of the times that we're in. But even if they don't, you don't have to be committed to an idea just because you thought it was great at some point in time, right? If it turns out that changes in the economy or changes in the culture or changes in your family cause a previously great idea to not be so great for you, then you're free to let that idea go and say, it was great for a time, but it's no longer my time. And that's a very simple way of living. But then we reintroduce the clutter once we say, and it must be this way for everyone else. So I need you to stop talking about it. I need all of you people over there to stop living it because all of you idiots can't see the fact that the economy has changed and this great idea is no longer great. And I'm not saying you're saying that, but I'm saying the way to keep it all simple is to stay focused on what's working for you, what's feeling right for you, and to continue to dance with that, continue to groove with that, and be willing to let go of everything that no longer serves you and allow other people To do the same.
1: It sounds a lot like one of the investment myths that I often hear like, oh, yeah, it used to be so great, but now that we're in a bad economy, it doesn't make sense for me to invest money in a retirement account, right? And it's like, well, what is the alternative? The alternative is to not invest money at all. Because usually that's what they're saying. I don't have time to, or I don't have the resource to invest for my future because inflation has totally ruined. And it's true that, you know what? a $100 a decade from now is most likely going to be worth less than a $100 today. Mm. But $0 a decade from now, $0 saved is still going to be worth nothing. And the only way to sort of outpace inflation is to invest. But also I would say with minimalism, man, yes, prices of things have gone up significantly. Yeah. So I better be more deliberate now with my money because I have less buying power than I did two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And because I have less buying power, but if I have the same amount of money, man, this is a limited resource. I want to be intentional. So if you don't like the word minimalism, you can say intentionalism. Am I being intentional with this resource? But I do want to address the second part of the question here, TK. Maybe you can help me out with this. So is the economy now forcing people who can no longer afford a large house to be more minimal? Well, I'll say just as forced commitment is not an indication of devotion, And forced restraint is not a marker of self-discipline. Forced simplicity is not a demonstration of minimalism. Mm. There's this air of needing to force something on someone. If I force you to be disciplined, are you really disciplined? No, you're forced into that, right? Real discipline means I'm willing to devote myself to do something, even when it may not be the most ideal time to do it, but I'm not being forced into it commitment is the same thing what if i said i'm going to force you to commit to your wife tk how good does that feel compared to (laughs) i'm devoted to my wife right that forced element and the same is true with simplicity with minimalism i often hear people say they grew up poor like i did and they say i when i grew up it wasn't called minimalism it was just called being poor well that's not minimalism you're right because it's possible to not be deliberate with the few resources you have. It's possible to not be intentional with very little money. In fact, I know there was a period when my mom, we were on food stamps. And this is back before the cards. You actually got white food stamps or bills. And you could sell, where I grew up, you could sell the white bills for 50 cents on the dollar for the green bills. R- real, regular money, right? Right. Yeah. That's not being deliberate with that resource. That's not intentionality. Yeah. It's, and then using that money to buy things other than food, not only A, is that illegal, but it is not the best use of that resource, which is intended to purchase mm. food to feed the family. And so if you're forcing someone to be deliberate, you're forcing that you can't force them to be deliberate. If you're forcing them to be simple, You're putting them in a cage, basically, right? We see that happen now in prisons. Yeah, I can throw you in a cage and you're going to live pretty simply, right? But that's not minimalism.
3: Yeah, that's legalism because we're creating behavioral changes by force without there being a corresponding disposition, right? It's about who you are on the inside. It's about your motives, your intentions. It's about your heart. And you can negate just about anything in life by interiorly folding up your arms and saying, I hate the fact that I do this and I hate everyone for it. That's a different spirit than saying, I love what brings me joy so much that I choose to be intentional about it. Now, you can have those two different people stand next to each other and circumstantial conditions can force them to engage in the same two activities but you've got two very different mindsets. You know, if I if I've got a billion dollars and I walk into a store and I see a t-shirt that I like, I don't have to look at the price tags, right? I can afford to ignore those price tags because I know what I'm bringing. On the other hand, if I only got if I only have $50, I need to look at the price tag, right? So, scarcity can force me to be intentional by taking away the luxury I have of being you know, uh, on autopilot in certain areas of my life. But we still have to choose the disposition we're going to have towards that. And that's something that's going to significantly affect our quality of life. But I think in a good economy or a bad economy, whatever label you wanna to give to it, you're always going to be better off if you choose to be intentional about what brings you joy.
1: Alabama, what time is it?
2: You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok.
1: Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and now on threads, apparently. <laughs> Get a lot of traction there over on threads. We're at The Minimalists on all those platforms. Just follow us intentionally wherever you might find the most value or don't follow us at all. Now, during the lightning round... This is where we each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We call them minimal maxims, and we put the minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. If you'd like, you can find all of our show notes over at theminimalists.com. Looks like Dustin has a question for us.
2: Do you believe minimalism is all or nothing in terms of life versus work? For example, I'm minimizing several areas in my personal life, but my work in a recording studio requires an element of more.
1: 60 seconds on the clock for my good friend Hmm. T.K. Coleman. What do you have to say to Dustin? When you make minimalism all or nothing, you make minimalism all
3: for nothing. The purpose of minimizing junk is for the sake of maximizing joy. So we develop these habits of saying hell no to excess so we can create space in our lives for the things that feel like a hell yes, right? And so it takes a lot of fortitude, it takes a lot of courage to be able to opt out of these consumeristic impulses to fill our lives up with clutter, but that's a means to an end. And the end is not to say, hey, everybody, look at me, I'm righteous now because I have less stuff than you. The real end is to say, hey, whether you're looking at me or not, I am free because I'm creating room for the things that matter most to me. And I'm filling that space with creative energy, with life-giving activity, with things that breathe vitality into everything that I do. And so if you've got areas in your life that deserve or demand more, and you're not investing in that for the sake of minimalism, what the hell is minimalism even for?
1: It's so good. I love what you're saying here because what we often think is if I get down to the right number of things or if I declutter my house enough, if I declutter my life, if I declutter my car, I declutter my work, then I'm going to be happy. But then what happens usually is I don't feel that bliss or that joy that I thought I was going to experience. So I might as well go out and I buy the things now that I think are going to make me happy. And it just becomes the cycle of, of acquiring and letting go. Oh, I must have bought the wrong wrong thing. So I acquire more and then I let go. Give me 60 Mm. seconds. I got something for Dustin here. Living simply involves intention, not deprivation. Now, of course, it's okay to temporarily deprive yourself so you can know whether or not something truly adds value to your life. I think about some of my favorite musicians, the lead singer of Parlor Hawk. His name's Drew. He did the soundtrack to both of our films. He worked with our friend Nate Pifer to create these beautiful soundtracks for both of our films. I think about Parlor Hawk and their band and some of their most amazing songs. There's this great song called Scars, and they Mm. used all of these different instruments on this song. And it just expanded the track and there were so many cellos and violins (laughs) and mandolins and guitars and electric guitars and drums. And ultimately at the end of it, Nate said, you know what? I'm going to strip out all of this and just leave Drew's voice and one or two instruments. And it's one of my favorite songs. Wow. And I think that's what happens with minimalism. Quite often we build up, but then we have to subtract. And through that subtraction process, we learn a whole lot about what adds value to our lives. Because sometimes we'll subtract something and we'll go too far. And I let go of something that I want to bring back in. Well, Mm. that's okay. There's no problem with that. There's no rule that says just because you got rid of something, you can't bring it back or bring back an alternative in the future. And I think about this with instruments as well. Yes, you might work in a recording studio, Dustin. But guess what happens? <laughs> you probably play the same guitar 80% of the time. It's the 80-20 rule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You probably wear the same clothes, 20% of your clothes, 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. You probably eat with the same silverware, 20% of the silverware, 80% of the time. <laughs> you can apply that to your furniture. You can apply that to the spaces throughout your house. The things that you use, 20% of the items that you own, get used 80% of the time. And so does that mean the other stuff is excess and obsolete? No. It just means that you might be able to get by without it.
6: Hey Dustin, post-production Peter here. I have a little insight on this since I ran my own recording studio in San Diego for several years and I interned at a studio in LA and know a lot of other studio owners and engineers. The studio world does have a lot of unique pressures and some of those do seem to conflict with living minimally at times. The biggest ones for me are the gear and what I consider to be the toxic hustle culture of the music industry. A lot of studio guys think they need to buy a ton of fancy gear to attract clients. That might be true in some situations, but I've gotten my favorite clients by meeting people in the real world, being friendly and helpful, and doing good work. And generally, I find that nine times out of ten, Clients that prioritize gear over everything else are not the kind of people I enjoy working with. At the end of the day, I think you have to let your portfolio speak for itself, and I strongly believe that where you set the knobs is far more important than what you're turning the knobs on. These days, I don't really use much hardware at all, and I really try to only buy gear that will really make a difference in the quality of my work or in my workflow. For me, that means being way more focused on my monitoring than just about anything else. The other problem with the studio world, is there's a ton of pressure to work all the time and put in crazy long hours because it's so competitive. After a few years of doing that and too many 14-hour sessions, I realized that's not what I wanted and started to rethink things. Some people love that lifestyle, and that might be necessary if you're trying to break into the big traditional studios in LA and work with A-list artists, but there are other ways to make a living in music and audio, so if you're trying to simplify, it might be worth thinking intentionally about your goals and how you want to spend your time. These days, I spend a couple days a week working on podcasts, which is great consistent work, and it gives me the opportunity to be involved in teams and be a part of spreading valuable messages. And then I spend the rest of the week mixing bands. This gives me a lot of flexibility to be more intentional with how I spend my time. Sometimes I miss being in the room with bands all the time, but I realize that's not the lifestyle I wanted. Now I don't work weekends. I get off at five or earlier and spend time with my wife. I can take a long lunch or go run errands if I need to. And I have more time and energy to devote to my own music
1: as well. Anyway, back to Josh and TK. Real quick for right here, right now. By the way, we'll check in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. It's a brand new month. And you know what that means. A new opportunity to let go. We have something called the 30 day minimalism game. It's the perfect time to declutter at the beginning of the month. Now here's the problem. Many people own a lot of stuff. The average American household has 300,000 items in it. And you look around and say, I really want to declutter, but I don't even know where to get started. There's just so much stuff. Well. The Minimalists found a way to make decluttering a little more fun. We call it the 30-day minimalism game. You can go to theminimalists.com game. You can download the free calendar. But here's how the game works. You partner up with a friend, a family member, a coworker. The first day of the month, you say, you know what? I'm going to get rid of one item. You're going to get rid of one item. We're competing now. A little friendly competition to make decluttering less boring, a lot more fun. Second day of the month, two items. Third day of the month, three Mm -hmm. items. So it starts off really easy, gets you that momentum that you need because anyone can let go of one item. Anyone can let go of two items, any item. It can be a pen. it can be a shirt, it could be a painting, it could be a couch. It doesn't matter. Get rid of one thing on the first day, two things on the second day, three things on the third day. But by the middle of the month, it gets a little more difficult because day 15, oh my gosh, I have to get rid of 15 items today and tomorrow I have to get rid of 16 items. Now you bet something at the beginning of the month, maybe you bet a dollar or a fancy meal or an experience together and whoever goes the longest throughout the mm. month wins. If you both make it to the end of the month, you've both won because you've gotten rid of 500 items and that's a, a really good start.
3: Yeah. Um, Did you and Ryan do this together? And then you got to 30 30
1: days and you were like, let's keep it going. (laughs) And then just like fight it out till someone cried, uncle. Well, it started because I asked myself a question when I first started simplifying. What would happen if I got rid of one material possession each day for a month? Just one. Anyone can let go of one item. And eventually I realized, oh, I got rid of way more than 30 items because as you get that momentum, here's what happens. It becomes easier and you feel freer and lighter, and you feel less weighed down by the material possessions. So I started getting rid of two items, three items, 10 items, and I realized, oh, maybe we could turn this into a game because to me, decluttering is really boring. If I could make it enjoyable, then I might want to do it. We've had tens of thousands of people play this 30-day challenge now. It's completely free to play. And what I love about it is you see people go way beyond 30 days. They'll either start the month over or they'll just say, it's day 34, it's day 35. I'm getting rid of 35 items today. It's day 36, it's day 37. Yeah. And they play with their friends and it makes it enjoyable. They're taking pictures of the things they're donating. The only rule is you have to get the item out of your house by the end of the day. Oh. <laughs> and so you've decided to let it go. You've gotten rid of it. You either sell it, you donate it, you recycle it. You find a way to get it out of your home. You're removing the burden from your home. And it's called the 30-Day Minimalism Game, theminimalists.com slash game. Speaking of that game, every the first Friday of every month now, we've been doing these new Friday afternoon minimalist Zooms. We call them FAMS, F-A-M-Z, for our Patreon subscribers. We're doing Zoom calls. You can have a Zoom call with with the minimalist me and Ryan and TK. We all hop on there. Alabama's there. Professor Sean, Danny unknown, Amy unknown was on there last time and a few hundred people will join and you get to come up and we just have a conversation. We can talk to you about whatever you're you're struggling with. And then also what I loved is there's this whole other community that's developing in the chat as yeah. we're talking to each other or we're talking to someone who has a question. And so Malabama has been collecting some of these chat questions and comments from these Patreon Minimalist Zooms. So instead of doing just a live stream where we live stream the podcast, we're actually in there in a Zoom call with you, patreon.com slash The Minimalist. But what do you got for us, Alabama?
2: Here was one from Shonda. I completed the 30-day minimalism game in June. I found it to be a daily practice in facing past decisions and generating compassion and forgiveness for myself so I could let stuff go. I'm excited to continue with it this month too.
1: Letting go is an act of facing past decisions, past indiscretions, past poor decisions, or past great decisions that are no longer serving us. When you let go of something, what you're doing is you're letting go of the burden so you don't have to carry it forward, but you're also making room for the future.
3: Yeah, and the the magic of letting go is that when you let go of a thing— you also have to let go of an idea or a belief or a conceptual limitation that's connected to that thing that caused you to hold on to that thing. It reminds me of this improv game where you, you form a circle with a group of people and you take any object, it can be a glass, and you pass it around the room and each person has to pretend that that is something other than a glass and then act it out. The first time you go around the room, nothing too impressive, right? One person pretends like it's a flower. Another person pretends like it's something else. And after a while, you go around the third time, each person is like thinking for a minute. And then they come up with something and everyone's like, wow. It starts to get magical, right? Because what's happening, the further you go into the game, the more you have to let go of your limitations about what this thing actually is. And it's the same way with the letting go. Day one, it's probably going to be pretty easy because everyone has something that they kind of know they've been wanting to get rid of. And it's like, all right, I'm already in. Let me just get rid of that thing. But by the time you get to like day eight, day nine, day 15, it's like, mm, mm. I got to be non-impulsive here. I can't let go based on ease. I got to think, I got to make it intentional. And then you start to surprise yourself because you're letting go of stories you've been telling yourself you're letting go of weights and that's when the real magic happens
1: oh it's so good we got so much more to talk about tk but first malabama what do you got for us
2: here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners hello hello
7: to everyone in the minimalists community i'm jackie from Reading, pennsylvania calling with a tip about decluttering your calendar and to-do list Start by looking back at the past month, at each commitment and optional use of your time, including recurring commitments, tasks that don't yet have an assigned time, things that you were asked to do and things that you offered to do. Examine each commitment to discover what questions you used to decide that you would commit to doing that thing or commit to putting it on your calendar. My calendar and to-do list used to be out of control. For years, I was unaware that my questions were overly simple. Things like, am I capable of this? Do I enjoy this? Is it a good thing to do? Now, I use layers of more refined questions that collectively act as a filter to protect my time. Do I have time to do this soon? Do I have energy to do it at all? Who am I doing this for? Is someone else better suited to meet this need? What is the opportunity cost? Meaning, is there something else I could be doing with this time that is more aligned with the life I desire to live? Does this commitment add value to my life? When you discover your own list of questions that you're currently using, spot which ones aren't helping you anymore and design new ones That will help you going forward to prevent your calendar and to do list from getting cluttered in the first place. Happy minimizing.
1: Welcome back, y'all. Before we get into some talk aboutables, Malabama, let's do one more question or comment from our most recent. Patreon, Zoom, the Friday afternoon minimalist Zoom. I got to tell you, that's been one of my favorite things that we've been doing mm. lately. They're so enjoyable to get that face-to-face interaction. It bridges the gap between the live events that we yes. do and simply just doing a, a live stream where we're talking at you. We actually get to talk with you.
3: Yep. I miss the live events tremendously, but this has been a great hybrid. It brings the worlds together. Uh, it's it's like the two of them had a love child. The podcast and the live events have a love child.
1: And we have people from Australia or Germany or the Netherlands yeah. or the UK or my favorite international place, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> we have Gosh. people from all over the place: yeah. Mexico, Brazil people are joining and we get to interact with you right there. So And they get to interact with each other, which is also cool. Yes. I, I really enjoy that because they're interacting with each other in the chat. Yes. They're answering each other's questions. You see community developing a lo- uh, around that. Now, the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to do surprise versions of those as well. We might do a Friday afternoon minimalist Zoom on a Wednesday morning. It could be a Sunday night. It could be whenever we want. We might just pop in there. So look for random emails from time to time. We won't do that super frequently because we recognize that your time is precious and if you want to join, you can, but also you can watch it after the fact as well. Danny and Sean are recording these things and so if you can't make it because the time doesn't work out for you for whatever reason, don't worry. You can always tune back in to that as well. What do you got for us, Alabama?
2: This comes from Derica. Whenever I'm tempted to go back into debt, I ask myself, what would I tell my best friend if they were in debt again?
1: Mm-hmm. Ooh, what a great question, right? Because... Sometimes the questions that we ask ourselves will help us determine the narrative for the future. Because what happens, and this is what happened when we were talking with, uh, the gentleman's name was Ryan Story. And he was talking about debt. And he's like, I recently, I got back into debt recently. And I'm just beating myself up, telling myself that like, oh, you're a piece of crap or you really screwed up. And I love what Derek is saying is, I wouldn't treat my best friend that way. I wouldn't be like, oh, TK, you really screwed up. How dare you? The self-talk that I give myself, I would never just spin that on TK. Mm. I would never batter you with my own negative self-talk. And so why am I doing it to myself? Why am I treating myself so poorly if I wouldn't treat the people that I care about so poorly? Do I not actually care about myself? Yeah, you know, interesting story. When Rod Serling first created The Twilight Zone,
3: they were a bunch of short stories with philosophical questions like, what does it mean to be beautiful? What is right and what is wrong? And when he pitched the idea to the networks, they were like, this is too controversial. Advertisers will never buy in. So he goes away and he rethinks it and says, okay, you know what I'll do? I'll put them on a different planet and these will not be humans. These characters will be Martians. And he brings it back to the networks and they look at it and they go, We love it. Same story, same philosophical questions, same elements. The only difference is it's not about you. So sometimes it just helps to create a little space between ourselves and the questions we need to be asking. And one way to do that is to say, how would you put that to a friend? Take yourself out of it and you get the sober version of your thought and then you can apply it back to your own life.
1: Yes, yeah, because the questions that we ask ourselves will then create the story we tell ourselves about Mm ourselves, about our past, about our present, about our future, about our possibilities, about our capabilities. It often starts with the question I'm asking myself, and usually what happens is I'm asking myself disempowering questions. Why did I screw up? Why am I such an idiot? It's like, well, you ask those kind of questions. I'll get 15 reasons as to why I'm a screw up or an idiot. But also the thing that I pointed out to Ryan on that Zoom call that we had was, hey, you know what? I don't have to pathologize being a screw up. It's okay. Yes, I'm a screw up. And how awesome is that? The fact that I've screwed things up and I screw things up every day. I make typos when I'm sending you a text message, oops, can't believe it said ducking. Uh, (laughs) I make mistakes. Yes, I'm a screw up. And that's totally okay if I own it in a way that isn't disempowering, but it can actually be empowering. And that's what comedians get right, right? All the great ones, the real core,
3: the real heart, the thing you can't steal from their routine, it's the jokes they make about themselves. You know, if I tell a story about, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the cat that, 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 that jumped the fence or the, the turtle that crossed the road, you can steal that joke. But when I make fun of me and all of my idiosyncrasies, you can't steal that, right? That's what makes us irreplaceable. And when we develop that ability to laugh about it, we do more than just, you know, strike at the heart of good comedy, but we make ourselves free, right? Because when, you, when you're free to laugh at it, you're, you're free to live through it.
1: Yeah, and laughing at those past mistakes in a way that recognizes their gravity, their weight. I don't want to make that mistake again. I don't want to go into debt again. Yeah. But I can also laugh at, like, (laughs) can you believe how bad I screwed up in the past? I don't ever want to do that again. Yeah. Quick programming note for you. I absolutely love Patreon. It, they, I mean, the folks there are amazing, whether it's Laura or we've had Jack, uh, the founder of Patreon, on the podcast before. Laura is the gal we work with closely over there. Sean and I are talking to her every day or every other day at points. And I love what they're doing in terms of their features and enhancing the app, whether it's on the desktop or on your device itself. But they just launched this new feature that better organizes the app because. I just recognized the other day, we have a a thousand posts on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash The Minimalist, there's a bunch of different posts, video posts, audio posts, home tours. During the Quarantine. We did qu- 50 different quarantine conversations. We have uh, videos of all of our live events if you're one of our Patreon true fans. And it was hard. They organized before using tags on the website, which was helpful. But now they introduced this new thing called collections. And this is what collections are. And this just helps us better organize our Patreon page. It's a new way to organize your posts so fans can easily discover your new work and find the posts that they will love the most. And so what I love about them is they're always thinking about the end user. And you know that about me. I'm always asking, what's the audience going to think about this? What's the user experience, the customer experience? I got that from my retail days. One of the nice things I pulled forward to today is I'm thinking about creating an outstanding experience for our viewers, for our listeners, for our readers. I'm always, I'm not thinking about the creator side of things. That's important to create something, but I'm also creating for an audience who is, they're going to be listening to this. And so I don't want to drag something on, when it doesn't need to be dragged on, but also where we post it is really important. And Patreon over the last few years, we've been using Patreon for a while now, they've developed a system that is hyper user friendly and it's better than any other similar interface that I've used. And What I love about it is they recognize when it's not perfect and they are always taking our feedback and accepting that feedback and incorporating it into the app. So if you're using the Patreon app on your phone or if you like me, you just go to the desktop. And I support a ton of different creators on Patreon because I subscribe to ad-free versions of podcasts or sometimes there are creators who just create things for Patreon. Our friend Matt Nathanson, he signed up for Patreon last year and he's he, he does all these weird announcements and he'll put new music on there. He'll put old concerts that yeah. have never been released on there. I love that. It allows us to connect directly with the creators, but the interface is not an obstacle. It actually enhances the experience. So if you go to the, Patreon.com slash The Minimalist. You can check all the collections there. You can see, oh, here's all the home tours. Here are all the audio podcasts. Here are all the video podcasts. Here's our five-part relationship with less series. Here are all the Minimalist live events. Dozens, if not hundreds of live events over there for the true fans. And so it's all organized now in a way. You just click on which collection that you want to explore. TK, I've got some talk aboutables for us here. What are we talking about? Would you ever spend a thousand dollars on a pair of shoes <laughs> how about five thousand dollars let's take a look at this video
0: you know these are going for six grand
1: Wow! you keep them motherfuckers
0: they're five thousand dollars for the shoes
3: you go buy a small car you go buy a, a fucking chrysler for five thousand dollars <laughs> ain't no shoe ever gonna be no wheels man I don't care what you say. Seven fifty. These are
4: probably.
3: Why those are seven hundred dollars though? We saying five, four, seventy-five. They said it costs more because of the date. I'm done. Joe, I'm not trying nothing on. God damn it! I got to get out of
0: here. I got other things to do.
1: Now, T.K. It's possible for Fifty Cent to purchase a $6,000 pair of shoes with no problem, but he recognized something that the minimalists have recognized for years, and that is just because I can afford something, that doesn't mean that that is the best use of this money. Yes, I might be able to afford spending $100 on a t-shirt, but is that the best use of that $100? I could buy a $1,000 pair of shoes. I wouldn't personally because that's not the best use of $1,000 for me. That's right, man. And a lot of people in the rap
3: game have understood this a long time ago. I remember hearing years ago Lil Wayne in the Katie Couric interview where um, he said he doesn't go to the club. And she was so surprised by that. She says, you don't go to the club. You're Lil Wayne. Like your music is at the club all the time. And he says, that's exactly why I don't go to the club. I had to make a decision. Do I want to want to be the guy at the club listening to music there? Or do I want to be the guy creating the music that they play at the club? I'm not at the club. I'm at the studio till two in the morning while people are at the club. So I can be the guy to make the music that they dance to at the club. Mm. And so you got to ask yourself, we we all play a little bit of the creativity and consumption game, but how do you want to define your humanity? Do you want to primarily be a creator or you want to primarily be a consumer? And 50 Cent is thinking about it from the vantage point of a consumer. Notice he says that you can get a car for those shoes And he named the kind of car. He said Chrysler, right? He didn't say BMW. And he says, ain't no pair of shoes ever going to be Wills." And why does he say that? Because he's thinking about Wills as something that can take you from point A to point B. Where are you trying to go in life? Invest in the things that are going to take you where you want to be, not the things that are going to make you look good to someone that you don't really care about and who isn't even trying to go where you want to go.
1: It was the opposite of how I grew up. Where I grew up you would be dressed fresh as hell and then getting on the bus. I got it, yeah. And so I'm going to wear $1,000 worth of clothes and I'm getting on the bus. There's nothing wrong with with riding the bus, but it was like, I'd love to have a car right now. I can't afford it because I spent all this money on these shoes or on this coat. Now, if you make the deliberate decision to ride the bus or be on public transit, awesome. But the question is, I only have so much money. What's the best use of this money? I've got one more talk bolt for you here. People often ask me, I know you're a minimalist, but do you ever splurge on anything? And I say, yeah, $6,000 shoes. (laughs) No, I do have a really nice pair of boots that I've had resold right across the street a few times. So when the sole wears out, they'll put a new sole on it. And I think those boots cost me about 300 bucks and I've had them for... Over a decade at this point. So what is that, like 30 bucks a year? couple dollars a month maybe. Right, and you still have I pay
3: thirty dollars for those shoes.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well I think the thing is I I had it when I bought them when I was twenty-nine. I remember when I was a minimalist, I had the same pair of boots. When I was just becoming a minimalist. I had the same pair of boots. So maybe I'll splurge there on something that does last a long period of time. I don't look at it as a luxury good, but I do look at it as a quality good. But there is one thing that I splurge on that I didn't used to splurge on and I splurge on it now after becoming a minimalist and that is on high quality food. I splurge on my health. So, I go to probably the most expensive grocery store in Los Angeles, Erewhon, mm-hmm. and I go there regularly because everything they have is certified organic. They charge a premium price because they create an excellent customer experience and Funny because I don't eat out at restaurants anymore unless there's some sort of special occasion. Here's the irony of splurging on this one thing: my groceries are way more expensive than they used to be, but the quality of the food is much better. And ironically, I spend less money on food now because I don't eat. I used to eat out two or three times a day. I had a drive-through life. I'd get up in the morning go get a drive through coffee and then get some drive through breakfast. And then I have a drive through lunch and I'm eating all these things in my car and it's unhealthy food, it's processed, it's seed oils, it's sugar, yeah. it's excess carbohydrates, it's processed meat, it's junk. And then I do the same thing for dinner, a drive through dinner. I had a drive through life and now it's much more intentional. And yes, I spend more at the grocery store, but I actually end up spending less on my food overall. And that wasn't my initial one intention. My intention was I'd rather spend more money on really high quality food. In fact, I'd rather sacrifice on clothes, on a really nice car, on a more expensive house, more square footage. I don't need those things. But you know what I do need? I need to nourish my body. Because you know it, as soon as you don't have it, as soon as you don't have your health, You don't have anything, man. That luxury car doesn't matter. Mm. The really nice clothes, the $1,000 shoes, the really great handbag. Those things are nice, but they're nothing. It's just window dressing if you don't have your health. And so yes, I splurge on my health and I'm willing to spend that money. In fact, I would be willing to deprive myself in other areas because that is my priority. When it comes to spending, I go to the most high quality B Corp grocery store in all of Los Angeles. In fact, I enjoy that store so much that I found my daughter was calling it a different name. She wasn't calling it Erwan. She had her grandparents were in town a few months ago and um, she goes, oh, when they come here, can we take them to the promised land?
2: Oh, my stars.
1: (laughs) because I don't have an Erewhon near my house in Ojai, so I will stop there and get groceries on the way home Uh, when I'm driving back. And I say, yeah, I'm going to be home late tonight. I got to stop by the promised land. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't even know it's called Erewhon. It's called the promised land because it is the place that provides the nourishing nutrition for me and for my family.
3: You know, my physical therapist tells me that uh, there are a lot of clients who spend their lives making millions and then they come see her in their 60s and they spend all that money back trying to get their health back, the health that they gave up.
1: Well, let me talk that about success. that real quick. There's this horrible equation. So just one generation ago, for every one dollar we for every one dollar spent on healthcare. So let me let me do that again. So you've got this terrible equation of food versus healthcare. One generation ago, for every $1 we spent on health care, we used to spend $5 on food. So if I spent $5 on food, I'd spend $1 on health care. It's exactly the opposite now. For every $5 we spend on health care, we spend only $1 on food, which means we spend $1 on food, but $5 in health care. And I would much rather spend the money up front preventatively then have to deal with the pain and suffering and all the money I'm going to spend on healthcare either way. Yeah, man. And this is where
3: minimalism as a philosophy of intentionality and critical thinking about everyday decisions can have significant ramifications for broader systemic issues, because think of how many people there are out there, sincere, well-meaning, working harder than any of us trying the best they can to be healthy but they are suffering from misinformation that's teaching them how to destroy themselves in the name of education, right? And just like we saw with the 50 Cent video, so many are being conditioned into thinking that this is what you got to do in order to matter. And it's just keeping them deeper and deeper and deeper in that cycle of poverty. And they're working hard and being taken advantage of. It's a terrible thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because we go back to what, matters to you is what you measure when you're measuring your success by the achievements of everyone else the car the clothes whatever else it might be that might not actually matter to you what matters to me is being healthy not having the best logo or the best material possession to impress someone yeah but to have the best food to not depress me is what's important that's right we're going to bring back a segment Alabama, what do you got for us?
2: It's time for TK's Tweet of the Week.
1: Oh, I'm calling this one. <laughs> <laughs> music to my ears. Uh, yes. I'm calling this one a portrait of calendar clutter. Let me first say this. You don't have to live like this. Although I know so many people who live exactly like this. In fact, they think it's virtuous. The picture you see on your screen right now is a picture of one person's calendar for a day. And it not only is aesthetically a nightmare, but it calls a stress for me. Can you read the tweet itself? Oh, my gosh.
2: Yes, I can read this terrible looking Tetris board. This comes from Claire VO. As a chief product officer, I'm one of the lucky folks that get to live my perfect work day every day. 30% 30% recruiting, 5% being recruited, 50% people in team, 30% strategy, 40% IC work, 30% customers, 20% yelling OKRS into the wind, 5% coding. Oh my gosh, this gives me so much anxiety to it look at. It seems like
1: like 300% busy.
2: Yes, exactly. I didn't
1: do the math there, but...
2: I'm not good at math, but yeah, that definitely exceeds 100 <laughs>
1: And I think the problem here is it presupposes being busy is the most important thing. Filling every minute of every day is the most important thing. But what are you doing with those hours? What are you creating? Who are you serving? How are you adding value? And by the way, if this is the best way to add value, then so be it. I'm not saying I'm against this for everyone. I'm certainly against living like this for me. Because I used to have a calendar like this. And it made no time for spontaneity, but it also made no time for me. I was absent from this calendar. And so I had to let that go. If you look at my calendar today, there's almost nothing on it. If you look at my calendar this week, there are very few things on it. So I can say yes to the most important things.
3: Yeah. If you work for her, are you free to admit that you don't like the way that calendar looks? Here's what I will say in devil's advocate defense of Claire. I'm going to take her word for it when she says that's her dream schedule. And if that's her dream schedule, I can't be a hypocrite and say I love stories about Kobe Bryant being up at three o'clock in the morning when everybody else is getting home from the club, working on his free throws. Um, I'm not so eager to hop on the anti-hustle bro train that I will condemn anybody who finds joy in getting after it and working hard just because it looks differently than the way I want it to look. At the same time, uh, there is definitely a social game that happens in a lot of workplaces where people are driving themselves into the ground. And, and this is sort of like the, uh, the calendar version of laughing at your boss's jokes that you don't think is funny mm. because you want to be in good. Right, and for a lot of people, it's sort of like mimetic desire is is heaviest in that kind of space where people have lost themselves a long time ago because they're trying so hard to look productive. One of the reasons why a lot of people started to experience so much joy and freedom when when we were kind of forced to go remote is because they achieve this state of being able to be judged by the quality of their output rather than how hard it looks like they're working. There are a lot of people yeah. in workspaces who it's not about the value they create. It's about the optics that they got to keep up. And those games are silly. So if anybody is looking at that, thinking that that's how you need to be to be a player in the world, that's silly. There's so many ways to be productive and make money. You don't have to be like that. But if that's Claire's dream, more power to you, because I'm sure my dreams look crazy and stressful to other people too. I totally
1: agree. Yeah. And if that's Claire's dream, brava to her. Yeah. Please don't batter me with your dreams because that would make me fake busy. Right. Yeah. I'm busy, but my busyness would be fake because it wouldn't be in alignment with what I want to do with my days, what I want to do with my calendar. And it would stress me out in a way that is counterproductive. And so if it works for you, great. But I decided to opt out of calendar clutter a long time ago. Professor John, I just
6: want to play devil's advocate as well. I'm looking at this closely and Wednesday morning at
2: 10 a.m. There's a half hour block called DNS and looking at the Twitter thread, uh, Claire clarifies that that means do not schedule. So she is setting that boundary
1: Wednesday at 10 a.m. for a half hour. Good for her. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing, though, like That is, the irony of this is, yeah, I used to have to block off times as well in the corporate world, right? But I only have half an hour that I can actually block off, right? And the irony is like, oh, but what if I need a day? What if I have a project I want to start working on? This is when boundaries become too rigid. We've set up this many boundaries. I don't make room for any of the spontaneity. If I freeze all of the water in my house, how am I going to drink any of it? Hmm. Yeah. Let's move on to a minimalist home tourist, number 45 in our series. We sent this out to you last weekend. Alabama. I think you called this one the dog matches the couch. This one's from Vicky. What does Vicky have to say? <laughs>
2: this is so cute. This was just a really simple uh, kind of living room that we had. And it just so happened that her dog was in the picture. But being able to simplify and get things like toys out of the way and get those tucked to the side where they're in their nice little um, not toy, uh, toy box was was something that was really beneficial for them, for for the kids as well as for the dogs.
1: So they're a family. And I think what I like about this, to me, this is not my aesthetic. In fact, there I, I would say, oh, at first, if I was just coming to minimalism, and I saw this and I'd be like, oh, I guess no one lives there. Right. And I get that criticism about my place all the time. So I, I guess no one lives there. But then you hear about their story and you're like, oh, wait, They're a married couple with kids and pets, and they're able to maintain order in their home Because they don't have excess. As soon as you have excess, it's easy for it to get in the way. Mm -hmm. It's easy for an excuse to pop up. I'll just put this mail on the counter here. Oh, I've got a flat surface over here. I'll just let a few things accumulate. Before you know it, everything has accumulated on every flat surface. And then it's on the floor. It's stacked over here. And it becomes a parody of a messy house. Not because you're an inherently messy person, but just because you have a lot of stuff. And even if you are a messy person... But you don't own many things. You're probably not going to have a messy home.
3: Mm. I love it, man. I love it. And 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 by the way, I love your observation about how uh, it's not about the type of person you are. We we're all capable of getting there and getting stuck in these clutter traps, not because you're just a cluttery person or you're the one person in the universe that doesn't get it. Like we're all part of this system where we're incentivized and propelled for to accumulate clutter, and we have to just strive to be conscious the best that we can. But I love this place and I love your dog. He's so cute. I love your dog. (laughs) I I, I used to be a dog sitter, by the way. So.
4: Yeah?
3: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's uh, probably my best job of all time. I I was most successful when I worked as a dog sitter. Yeah, At At least least that's how they made me feel.
1: 50% of the dogs survived. (laughs) Oh gosh. So you have a positive spin on that narrative. You're a terrible human being. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not the one who killed the dogs. Hey. <laughs> No, no dogs were hurt in the filming of this episode. By the way, we send this out to anyone who subscribes to the video version of the podcast, a weekly minimalist home tour. You can send yours to podcast at minimalists.com if you'd like us to feature your home on a future episode. You can also send in your Amass it or Trash It segments, your Sucky ad segments. If you got a tweet you want us to review during TK's Tweet of the Week, if you have an obsolete object but you don't know what to do with it, you can send those in to us as well. Podcast At theminimalists.com, Malabama. Let's read some more about less.
2: Yeah, speaking of dogs, here is one from Derek Sivers. The article is called Dashing Dogs Searching for Purpose. Hmm. People search for their passion or purpose, but purpose and passion are words we use when we're not working. When we're actually engaged in the flow of fascinating work, we don't think in these terms. The task at hand fills our mind. The task itself is what keeps us up all night, not some extracted story of purpose. Imagine you put a GPS tracker on a dog. Then you set him free to run in the countryside. He dashes, he digs, he stops to sniff, he romps with another dog. Later, when you map his recorded GPS data, you see that he generally went northeast. But would you say that going northeast is his passion and purpose? Mm. You are like the dog. Don't seek a story of purpose to guide or label your fascinations. When we announce something, we have a social need to be congruent. If you say that your purpose or passion is to go northeast, but then you get interested in something to the southwest, you might ignore that interest and limit your play to what fits the narrative. Don't do this to yourself. Focus on what fascinates you, no matter how uncharacteristic. There is no purpose because there is no line connecting moments in time there is no plot. You are not a story.
1: TK, I have a feeling you might simultaneously agree with and disagree with Derek Sivers on this. What's your initial impression after hearing this article, which, by the way, we'll put a link to it in the show notes over at minimalists.com.
3: Well, while I do believe we have purpose, I mean, something I've been talking about for like the past decade or longer is forget about finding your purpose and just focus on following your curiosity. Because that's really the inner compass that's going to point you in the direction of what you're created and called to do. But sometimes we act as if the person that we are is the least optimized for the thing that we're supposed to do. No, your curiosities are your biggest clue for what you're here to do, for what you're optimized to do. And so purpose isn't like this intellectual puzzle that you figure out by conducting surveys and asking other people what you should do or by navel gazing or by refusing to engage the world, you got to get out there and you got to follow the rabbit trails of fascination. And you got to be willing to experiment and to explore and to learn new things. And then you say, wow, while I was busy chasing that rabbit down that rabbit hole, I arrived in this beautiful, mysterious world, discovered a bunch of cool things. And that's an important piece of my puzzle. It's an important piece of who I am. And I'm going to carry that life and vitality into everything that I do. Like, So I'm I'm with this. This is what I've been
1: teaching students for a really long time. Curiosity is the way to get to passion. I think the obverse side of that is we often try to impart meaning onto everything mm-hmm. and it makes us miserable. When I went to the ocean yesterday. I was at the beach with my wife. I didn't look at the wave and say, what's the meaning of that wave? And a seagull flew overhead. I said, what's the meaning of that seagull? And so people ran by. I was a kid playing with a shovel. I said, what's the meaning of the shovel that kid is playing with? We try to find meaning in everything. And that actually brings me to our Added Value segment today. The song you hear playing in the background right now is from the soundtrack of this new show that I absolutely loved, TK. It's called The Idol, and it's starring Lily Rose Depp and The Weeknd. And it's a fascinating show that critics largely hated. And I realized the reason they hated it when I started looking at some of the reviews. They all went looking for meaning in the art. Mm. When I go look at a Picasso painting, I didn't say, what's the meaning of this painting? Or I see Donald Judd, who makes this beautiful minimalist artwork. I say, oh, what does he mean by this? Now, I can interpret it in a way. There's certainly interpretation if a work of art is being created The audience is going to get different things based on their perspective, based on their worldview, based on their culture, based on their beliefs, based on their past, based on their desires, based on the story they tell themselves about the artwork or about their own lives. And what happened is everyone saw the idol and they started to try to find what's the message in this. And I think this is one of the most toxic things we've done with art over the last decade or so. Everything that needs to be created needs to have a message. And if it doesn't have a message, then what's the point of it? Huh? What's the point of a Picasso painting? What's the point of art? Maybe it's to evoke an emotion. Maybe it's to make you feel something you didn't realize you felt. Maybe it's to connect dots in your life. Maybe it's just to be. What's the meaning of a wave? It's to wave. What's the meaning of a bird? It's to be a bird. What's the meaning of life? Living is the meaning of life. And so the song you hear in the background is the, the theme song to this show. And what I realized, I watched it, and it's a hyper-erotic portrait of dysfunction. Dysfunction. And you'd probably rate this X if you made it a five-hour movie because that's what it is. It's five episodes, and really, it's a five-hour movie starring The Weeknd, starring Lily Rose Depp, and a bunch of other really talented people. And when you make a film like this, you usually fail at making it because it's about a musician who's trying to make it or becoming a pop star. And so it's a cultural critique or maybe even a satire on fame and the dysfunction that's associated with fame with the isolation that's associated with fame and that whole culture. With L.A. uh, in general, it is a cultural critique of the sort of young L.A. living. Hmm. And I found that the people who were criticizing this film, they thought that just because you were making art about something, you were endorsing it as a message. And I saw some people, in fact, I wrote down Hmm. this Rolling Stone uh, excerpt here: Rolling Stone completely bashed this series, and they said Sam Levinson, who is the director of the show, he also directed Euphoria, as well. Sam Levinson and Abel, the weekend Tesfay are the sick and twisted minds behind the sleaziest love story in all of Hollywood that follows pop superstar Jocelyn as she navigates the seedy underbelly of the music industry and falls under the spell of Tedros, a mysterious owner of a popular LA nightclub who secretly runs a cult reminiscent of Nexium and Scientology. And what I realized, TK, is oh, wow. If I make a documentary about Charles Manson, I'm not endorsing what Charles Manson did. But if they create this fictional account that shows you in visceral detail, and beautiful, it's really beautiful too. Like the atmospherics, the lighting, the set design, the angles. Sam Levison knows how to push buttons. But I found there were two types of people who hated this film. I mean, there are Puritans who just hate anything that has anything to do with sex. And okay, I get that. It's not for you. If if you, especially at the American Puritanical side of things, I think people in Europe probably find more value in a show like this or they're at least, uh, they're open to a show like this because it's, it's highly erotic and highly sexual. But the other side of people, the people who are looking for a message in everything.
3: Yeah. First, Some people only have the courage to create when they're confident that they get to have the last word, but then there are those who are willing to step forward and put something out there, even though they know it's going to be the beginning of a provocative and contentious discussion. And I think that's the kind of courage that it takes to be human, because none of us are ever going to get the last word on meaning. It's funny because people say, well, well, what's the point of that? What's the point of that? Suppose I gave you the point in the form of, uh, the point is that the whole world's going to hell. That's the message. Or the point is, everything's going to be all right. All right, now you tell me, are you happy now? What's the point of me having to give you the point? At the end of the day, even when we get the point, what we're seeking for is something that we call by many different names. It's connection. It's meaning. It's joy. It's fulfillment, eudaimonia, flow total engagement, freedom, whatever it may be, but there's some visceral sensation that we're seeking. Why can't you have that right now without me giving you a point or someone else giving you a point for everything? There's the story of a dancer who performed this dance and someone came up to her afterwards and says, what was the meaning of that dance? And she says, if I could tell you the meaning, I wouldn't have needed to dance it. Sometimes the meaning is in the dance, the dance is in the meaning.
1: And if I hand you a meaning, it can also ruin the dance. I think about Jason Mraz. He has this great song called You and I Both. Yeah. And it's this beautiful love song, you and I both. And like, he's just going through this, what I assume is like this conversation with this lover, this joyous conversation. And I saw him live once in Pittsburgh and he gets up on stage and he's like, "The song, I wrote it about my cat. And you're like, oh. He goes, oh, I'm sorry if that runs it for you. And it obviously did. Now, every time I hear the song, you hear him singing to his cat. He's not singing to this lover in this dynamic. It's, I wrote this about my cat. The meaning, when you take someone else's meaning, and you're supposed to have a universal meaning about something, like people want to have for a show like The Idol. If it has a universal meaning, maybe it ruins the art. One other thing I really respect about this show is they shot it with a different director and different writer up front. And they filmed six episodes, spent $75 million on this six-episode show. Wow. And The weekend was like... This feels like it has too much of a message to it. I want to scrap the whole thing and start over. Oh, wow. That's refreshing by the way. I think people are going to appreciate that. Yeah, I, I would hope so, but I don't think they do. We're in a culture now that there's outrage because there isn't a message or I me- I've heard people call this show torture porn because there are elements of BDSM in it and power dynamics and coercion and manipulation. That's not an endorsement. In fact, it's showing the shadowy side of Hollywood or the music industry or whatever and recognizing there's also multiple kinds of coercion. And in the show, it actually depicts the acceptable kinds of coercion with the record executives who are manipulating artists. But then you have this sort of cult leader pimp character who's also coercing people. And it's like, oh, well, he's obviously bad, but it's okay that... These record label executives—they're doing it within the bounds of decorum, and because they're doing it in this decorous way, then fine—it's uh, it's okay to manipulate people. No, manipulation's manipulation, and in fact, at least when you see the ugly side of it, and it's not all dressed up in decorum, you see it for what it is. Yeah, and that doesn't mean they're endorsing it. But what I loved is, the weekend was like, hey, this has too much of a message. I don't really like the tone of it. The atmospherics don't work. I want to scrap it and start over. And they brought Simon Levinson in. They did complete rewrite and they refilmed almost the entire thing. Five episodes now. And it feels like a five hour movie. I didn't take a message out of it, but it is a piece of art. And the song you hear in the background right now is the theme from the soundtrack. Beautiful soundtrack, by the way. The Weeknd did the music. And so if you have... A show that's about a artist often what happens is like the music is garbage because it's about a fake artist right a fictional artist but this is a real artist and also like that what he did here is he injected this whole film with his music and he's a hit writer so he's making hits about a pop star who is herself making Mm. hits and you realize like oh yeah yeah this is this feels real it's not something that I like. In fact, it made me hyper uncomfortable a lot of the time. But doesn't great art often do that? The show is called The Idol. That is our maximal episode for today. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Alabama Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all.
2: We'll see you next time.
1: Peace.